Hey, Jay. How's it going? I'm good. Nice to talk with you. Yeah, good to have you here. Um, I don't usually uh, use this podcast as much anymore just due to time. Um, I'm back at school and uh, mostly my focus is on my Substack uh, writing on uh, vaccines and COVID. Um, but I, I've used this podcast at several points to uh, talk to a lot of different uh, people like Douglas Murray, Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, Dr. Matt Johnson, you know, neuroscience, politics, culture, spirituality, all of it. Um, we're doing this now because I think this is very important to do. Um, given there was a podcast released this week on the uh, Making Sense channel where uh, Sam was interviewing Barry Weiss, Michael Schellenberger, and uh, one other individual whose uh, name escapes me right now. But uh, they were talking about the Twitter files, and uh, part of that discussion included a portion on COVID information. And uh, you were brought up in that conversation. Um, and uh, when you were brought up about your blacklisting on Twitter, um, Sam brought up a number of things in relation to an article you wrote in March of 2020 in the Wall Street Journal on COVID mortality and the expectation of deaths. And uh, you were laying out a very sound and at that time contrarian argument to what was being told in the mainstream media. Um, so I'm just glad to have you here to uh, talk about that. So let's, let's just dive right in, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, although, let me just say one other thing too. The reason why we're responding to this or why I'm giving you the opportunity to respond to this is because Sam Harris is a very notable and influential public intellectual who has a major podcast channel, which is listened to a very large, uh, is, is listened by a very large audience who uh, many people agree with him, disagree with him. Um, I greatly value his voice and I've learned a lot from him over the years in terms of intellectual discourse, politics, culture, and most importantly, spirituality and religion. And so when a, uh, a very notable public figure like him is making claims about something you wrote in 2020 and in light of your blacklisting on Twitter, I think it's important to uh, respond to that. So, yeah, so let's just dive right in into a few of the claims he made. Um, first, that in that Wall Street Journal article, you uh, he, he perceived that you were implying or claiming that there was equal probability of 20,000 people dying of COVID and 2 million, which was the range you gave. Is that true? Uh, uh, no, it's not true. Um, can, can I just uh, give a tiny bit of background for listeners to this? Yes. Uh, yes. The, the piece so they can understand uh, both my thinking and also the, the state of the knowledge about the lethality of the disease in March of 2020. Um, so the, the, the key thing is a distinction between two epidemiological quantities, one called the case fatality rate and another called the infection fatality rate. Uh, just to give some, some history around this, uh, in, during the 2009 swine, uh, swine flu epidemic, the original case fatality rate that the World Health Organization estimated was something on the order of 3 or 4%. Whereas the infection fatality rate turned out to be something like on the order of 0.01%. So 
uh, why such a big difference in the lethality estimates? Uh, it, it, the, the key thing is that for respiratory viral pandemics like, uh, like swine flu, like COVID, uh, very often, especially early in a pandemic, you have a, a large number of people who are infected that show very few symptoms and don't come to the attention of public health authorities. Because of that, um, the case fatality rate essentially is focused on people who are very, very sick. And that's why that number is so high. You, you've identified a lot of people that are very sick and some fraction of them die, 3 4%. That is not indicative of the true danger of the pandemic to most people. Um, and uh, so I knew this history in the early days of this pandemic. So the, my hypothesis was that, well, this is a very highly infectious respiratory virus, just like the uh, swine flu uh, was. And so therefore, it might be true that there were many people who were infected that had not uh, come to the attention of medical authorities. And so that the early estimate provided by the World Health Organization of three 3.4% case fatality rate was not accurate. It was not an accurate depiction of the actual risk that most people would face if they were infected. So that Wall Street Journal piece was a was essentially uh, a, an argument for a hypothesis. And uh, to make the case for the hypothesis, we took data, the data that the very scant data that were available about um, about mortality and tried to lay out a case that that we didn't have enough information to know what the actual infection fatality rate was. So we took data from the Diamond Princess cruise. We took data from like the NBA, where actually a lot of people had been infected and no one had died. Um, and we made some back of the envelope calculations to say, look, it could be a very, very, very deadly disease, killing 2 million people hey, in hey, short order. Hey, Jay, one sec. Sorry, I'm hearing your voices uh, changed a bit. Oh, moving? sorry. Yeah. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yeah, now this is better. The estimate, the estimate could have ranged for the, the based on the available data at the time, um, and, and the back of the envelope calculations, you could get an, a number of that the, there was a very very low number resulting in you know two million deaths or or very I'm sorry very very high number resulting in two million deaths or very very low number resulting in you know a small number of deaths. Now, equally probable, no. Those were just the estimates that were consistent with the available data at the time. And the purpose of the, the, the Wall Street Journal piece was to say we desperately needed an, an accurate study to assess the infection fatality rate. Um, and uh, it actually, another thing that the Wall Street Journal piece did, if you look, read it carefully, which I guess Sam didn't, is that it called for focused protection of vulnerable people. Because even then it was clear it was older people that was re were really the high-risk people. Um, and in fact, uh, so that's, a, so that's the, that's the context of the, the Wall Street Journal piece. Uh, the, 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 the kind of study it was calling for was something called a seroprevalence study. Sero means blood. Uh, seroprevalence in this case means looking for antibodies to COVID in the blood of people, uh, in a representative sample of people. If you know how many people have antibodies that are specific to COVID, uh, then what you can do is then get an estimate of of, of, of the death rate that's much more accurate because you know the denominator. You know how many people died from COVID. That's easy to see because, you know, every time someone dies of COVID, they die at, at, at the attention of public health. 
And the denominator tells you how many people have had COVID, even people that are mildly ill that didn't come to the attention will have antibodies, or at least most of them will. And that tells you uh, the denominator. That's, that's the kind of study that we were calling for in that Wall Street Journal piece. Okay, and where was that 20,000 number coming from exactly? I mean, it was back of the envelope estimate. I, th- I think it was based on, um, I, have to, I have to look back at my notes, but it was something based on, on uh, the, either the NBA or the Diamond Princess, where there's a, you know, once you take into account uncertainty bounds, you can get low-end estimates that are, you know, quite low. Doesn't mean you believe that the low end estimates are going to turn out to be true. Just those, those are possible. It's like a, 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 a like for instance, in statistics, there are ninety five percent confidence bounds with a very low end and a high end number, and you you, you say those bounds because you want to be ninety five percent. You know, you, you you want the true value to be contained within it ninety five percent of the time. Um, so it it doesn't tell you that anything about equally likely probabilities. That's just false. Yeah, and you mentioned in the Wall Street Journal piece the evidence coming from the NBA, and you put it in parentheses, albeit very weak evidence. Yeah, I mean, that was the problem. We didn't have good evidence uh, at the time. We had the NBA, I mean, we we, we had the Diamond Princess cruise data. Uh, We had the NBA. We had some estimates out of China, but those estimates out of China were were hard to interpret. Uh, Nothing that could tell you really, truly, how many people had been already infected. Um, that, that's why we wrote the piece, because we, 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 we saw that the estimates that the World Health Organization put out could not be tr- actually indicative of the actual mortality risk from being infected. That was just not plausible. Um, and the only way to, uh, to really resolve the uncertainty was to, to conduct a study a seroprevalence study to get that estimate. The purpose of putting that range, such a wide range, was to emphasize how little was actually known about this infection fatality rate number, which is absolutely crucial, both for both for like setting public expectations about what happens if you're infected, but also for modeling. In fact, that infection fatality rate number is is, is a vital number if you want to understand uh, the the uh, uh, you know sort of parameterize uh, forecasting models of the pandemic. Um, if, in fact, in a piece that Sunetra Gupta wrote uh, just a couple of weeks, a week after we published that piece, she emphasizes the infection fatality rate as the key number, the key uncertainty for any forecasting model. That's why, uh, for instance, the early Imperial College models were based on you know, essentially nothing because they didn't know that number. And in the Wall Street Journal article, you also in that paragraph on the evidence from the NBA, you say like, this is the best evidence in the U S. So it's, it seemed like you were clearly using the, the best evidence available in the U S which was producing those lower bounds. So you wanted to use some form of American evidence, which is rational and understandable. And the best that that was giving you was those very low estimates. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem was like, it was, it was terrible evidence. And we say that in the, in the wall street journal piece. Yep. Um, the, the, the purpose was to emphasize to the reader that we didn't know this crucial number, this number that uh, is crucial epidemiologically and also for policy purposes. Yeah, okay. We'll get to the overall slant of the piece in a second, which I think is very, very important and I think was misinterpreted by Sam. Um, but uh, when it comes to what the expectation was in March 2020, 
Sam was saying that it was completely impossible to think that 20 to 40,000 was at all a possibility at that point. And so therefore to use it as a low bound, it makes no sense given the data coming from Italy, which if you were to scale that, you would never come to 20 to 40,000. I mean, the data coming out of Italy also didn't have infection fatality rate numbers. The data coming out of Italy told you the case fatality rate numbers. If Sam is saying that you scale the case fatality rate numbers, well, you could scale the case fatality rate numbers out of China and you get 3.4%, which is what the World Health Organization did. That is a misleading way to think about uh, the actual infection fatality risk. And it's also a, a terrible way to actually estimate the infection fatality rate. The way you estimate it is by running a seroprevalence study, which is actually what we ended up doing in April of that year. Two of them, three of them, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to get to that, too, in a second. Um, and he was saying it was obvious at that time in March 2020 that you were going to have hundreds of thousands of people dying from COVID in the U.S. Was that obvious to you, or do you think that's rational to think it, that way? It was time? not obvious to me. It depended on what the, a, a million things, including, of course, the infection fatality rate, but also what our strategy for managing the pandemic was. So, for instance, if we'd actually embraced a policy of focused protection of, of high-risk people early in the pandemic, we could have had many, many fewer deaths. So the, uh, I, I saw a lot of people playing this game of trying to estimate how many people were going to die from the pandemic as if it were a just a given fact as a, rather than something where it, it's amenable to policy uh, intervention. Um, the purpose of estimating the infection fatality rate wasn't to, to play this game of, oh, ha ha, I picked, I picked up the number before everyone else did. Uh, I, you know, so forecasted how many people are going to die in the pandemic before everyone else did. That's, that's just a parlor game. The key thing is mm. you use that number to inform policy. You plug it into, uh, forecasting models, you, you look at the risk factors that are associated with the infection fatality rate, you design strategies and policies designed to protect people with that number. Um, so for instance, focus protection comes out of the fact that there's a steep age gradient in that infection fatality rate with older people at tremendously higher risk than younger people. Um, so I, I don't really know why Sam is fixated on that. It does, it's the, the purpose isn't of these kinds of exercises this is not a parlor game. The purpose is to design policies to, uh, to parameterize epidemiological models so that you can un better understand how to protect populations. Right. And, uh, expanding on that point in the podcast, he was saying, there are people who won't listen to another word I say because I had Nicholas Christakis on my podcast who claimed that we were going to have 1 million people die of COVID in March 2020. Now, I don't know who he's referring to there. Um, uh, I assume that's you're not referring to me in any way. If, if that is me, well, that's, that's, that's totally not true. Um, there are other <laughs> claims that, are, that, that, that were made on his podcast by Christakis that I viewed as just totally wrong. Um, we can, I, I can touch on that later, but, you know, we, we can happily give credit to Nicholas Christakis if he predicted in March, 2020, that 1 million people were going to die of COVID. Like, like if he said that, then absolutely like good on him that he was able to predict that. Right. I mean, Nick is a, uh, Nick is a legitimate expert in the field. I think he did get quite a lot wrong, but that just shows you how, um, how much uncertainty there was that even, even 
amazing people like Nicholas Kostakis might get things like, you know, the transmissibility of, 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 of the protection against transmission of the, of the virus after your vaccination wrong. I mean, it's just a very different, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's actually the reason why you need to have uh, no, no censorship, no aspect for misinformation, because you need to have experts with all of their disparate views uh, able to interact and get their views out. And then you can like, you know, test it against evidence, run studies, do all kinds of things. Um, the, the, the goal, it's not a parlor game. This is science, right? You have a hypothesis and you express the hypothesis and then you collect data. You test your hypothesis against the data. You revise the hypothesis. You design strategies and policy around the, 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 the view that emerges from that process. And you need lots of people who have the relevant background to, to, uh, to try to, to actually do this. Yeah. So, so credit again, credit to Christakis for correctly predicting that in March, 2020, but Sam goes on to say that Christakis was motivated by an expectation that 1 million people would die at that point. Whereas you were motivated by an expectation that we were going to lose far fewer than that. And now this is a direct quote to my eye. He was quite wrong to expect that at that point. So uh, the problem is I didn't expect 20,000 deaths. I also didn't expect 2 million deaths. The purpose of the piece was to uh, induce people to understand that we didn't know how what the infection fatality rate actually was. I'll give you evidence of this. Right. Shortly after, just a week and a half after this, this piece, we organized, me and my colleagues, we organized a study a seroprevalence study to estimate this uh, to the extent of the disease, how far the disease had already spread in Santa Clara Cali, uh, County, California. The week after that, we did another study in Los Angeles County, California, a seroprevalence study. Uh, I really wanted to know this number because this number would help design policy. The purpose wasn't to say, Oh, look, I'm so smart. I know the number of deaths that are going to happen. That's just a parlor game. It's clair, clair, you know, clairvoyance for what? Um, I took the, the, if Sam is trying to say I didn't take the disease seriously, he has to explain why I spent the last three years of my life trying to like inform the science of, of COVID and policy about COVID. It's, it's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... To be fair, I don't think he's saying that you're not taking it seriously. What he is saying, which I think is also wrong, is that, again, you were motivated by an expectation we were going to get far fewer deaths than one million at that time. And now that, I don't think that's true, right? You, you were not expecting lower than one million. Like, you weren't really expecting anything. You gave a range, and then you went out and did studies to precisely find what exactly is the infection fatality rate, Correct. Yeah. I mean, that was the purpose was of, of, uh, of the Wall Street Journal piece was so that, in fact, that Wall Street Journal piece is what led to people contacting me um, and giving me uh, access to resources. So we could actually run those studies. <clears throat> the purpose of the piece actually was to was to induce the CDC to run those sort of studies. It was, was, was actually quite a surprise that I, I actually got to run the studies myself. Um, I mean, it would have been actually much better off if, if the CDC had, had done those studies before they had talked about what the fatality rate actually was. Um, I, I, I don't, 
I, I don't understand when Sam says that I was motivated by some some expected number of deaths. The, mm. uh, far, the, fewer the, the, far, far fewer than a million is what he perceived you as. as well, I don't, I don't, I don't, again, I, I'm, I, my goal was not to like predict the total number of deaths. My goal was to design a strategy and promulgate a strategy that would prevent deaths. I, right. I mean, it seems like to me that's that was what everyone that was serious was engaged in. And maybe Sam didn't understand what the what the purpose of these numbers were. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then he goes on to say, you didn't at all think one million people would die at the time. If you thought one million people died at the time, like Nicholas Christakis, you would never write an article like that where you would give such a broad range. <laughs> I have the range included one million that I gave. Um, the purpose of writing that article again was to highlight the fact we didn't know this key key number. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's, it's really frustrating to hear someone like Sam Harris, who's, I mean, ostensibly smart, not understand the most basic things about the motivation to do science in the context of this. Uh, If, uh, if I knew the number to be 1 million, uh, I certainly wouldn't have written this op-ed. That is true. If I knew the number with certainty to be 20,000, I certainly wouldn't have written the op-ed. And if I knew the number to be 2 million, I certainly wouldn't have written the op-ed. The reason to write the op-ed was because I didn't know what the number was. And you need to know the number in order to design the right strategy. Yeah, and to, to be fair, he's right. The piece had a, had a, had a explicit slant. But that slant, in my view, has been totally dedicated, right? And we, we should be clear about that. The slant in your piece at the time was that the estimates that we're getting right now that were being uh, promoted in the mainstream media and by the CDC and by mainstream scientists was 3%, 4% infection fatality rate. And in that piece, you had a slant of it's probably not going to be that. And that slant was correct, right? It's not like you were writing a totally neutral piece. You did have a slant that the current concerns for fatality were incredibly overblown, right? And that is correct, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I thought that the 3.4% number was misleading. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, we, um, I, I was motivated by hypothesis by analogy from the early days of the swine flu epidemic, which actually had, again, that very, very high case fatality rate put out by the uh, World Health Organization uh, that turned out to be, you know, uh, uh, what is it like a hundred or uh, almost a thousand? Someone between one hundred and thousand fold too high. I guess a hundred right. fold too high. Yeah, yeah. So the overall slant of the piece is right. Right at that time in March twenty twenty, you're you're reading all the estimates that are being promoted in the mainstream media of three percent, four percent. I even remember somewhere five percent fatality rate, and you're saying that's likely not true. It's likely far lower than that. And you were 100% vindicated on that front. Right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I, but by how much, I didn't, I didn't know. That's the um, purpose of the piece. Yeah. Now, can you – so I'll, I'll tie in how this relates to the discourse. But now, can you briefly, in however way you want, go into the studies that you then conducted next month? Like, you, you found an infection fatality rate of 0.2% in those studies, right? Which is far from the three to 4% estimates at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's locked down. So it's kind of hard to run population level studies, but we re- successfully ran two, ver- three actually large, large population level studies. Uh, one in LA County, 
one in Santa Clara County and one with with Major League Baseball in cities across the country. Um, the the estimates were that in Santa Clara County, something like there were 50 times more infections than cases. Our estimates implied about 50,000 people had had COVID and recovered based on based on um, the uh, it, it presence of specific antibodies in the blood. And that implied an infection fatality rate of 0.2%. We ran a, a separate independent study with an with a, 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 a overlapping but slightly different uh, study group, um, a, a study team in Los Angeles County, and we found, again, about 40 times more infections than cases, 4% prevalence, and again, about a 0.2% infection fatality rate. The Major League Baseball study was in a whole bunch of Major League Baseball cities. It wasn't a population study. Uh, it, was, it sampled employees of Major League Baseball, not athletes. And there, instead of finding 3 or 4%, which we found in California, nationwide, the prevalence was something like 0.7%. Nobody had died among the major league baseball employees among those of those 0.7% of them that have been infected. So the infection fatality rate from that estimate, that study, if, if you wanted to say it that way, was zero. So, you know, we have very low infection fatality rates. Um, now, uh, you don't make these decisions with one study, two studies, or three studies. You make these decisions based on a very large uh, basis of evidence from multiple study teams. But that's actually what happened. After we wrote those pieces, a very large number of study teams around the world started releasing seroprevalence studies. In some places, they found higher numbers, like New York, uh, in other, uh, where the infection failure was higher, you know, 0.5, 0.6%. In other places, they found lower. Like in Africa, in India, the infection failure rates are often much lower. And it correlated very strongly with how old the population was that they were estimated, that they were sampling. In places with older populations, nursing homes and so on, they found higher infection fatality rates. In places with lower, uh, with younger populations, they found lower ones. Um, there's a, a meta-analysis done by John Ioannidis published in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization that found that for people over 70, the infection fatality rate was quite high. You know, like four or five percent. For people under 70, again, for worldwide, based on a whole bunch of these studies, it was quite low. It was like 0.05 percent. So our estimates from these studies were actually uh, replicated over and over again by other independent teams from around the world. Mm. And what time frame are we talking about here when John did that study? Uh, I think he published that in December 2020 or January 2021. Uh, the seroprevalence studies were happening, of course, all through 2020. Mm. Right. And there was recently the meta-analyses that John also published, which found 0.034% infection fatality rate in the non-elderly population. Zero yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty right. close to his number that he had in that bullet in the World Health Organization study, which, which was 0.05% for the under 70. Yeah, yeah. And um, well, this ties into something I'm going to talk about in a second on Sam's podcast, but um, there, there seems to be some number of people, some mainstream scientists who seem to be, you know, looking at estimates like that and saying, well, oh, OK, well, now we have better evidence. You know, in 2021, it was right to think the fatality would, would be far higher. But you but you beg to differ on that. Right. Based on your studies and John's studies. 
I mean, the, the way that our studies were met by the scientific community was that was this idea that we had done absolutely everything wrong, even though they're actually quite high quality studies, both like both the, 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 the LA County study was published almost immediately in the Journal of American Medical Association. And the Santa Clara study got published in the International Journal of Epidemiology, really high quality places where, you know, we, we, we had all kinds of um, rough reports we responded to and, and, uh, you know, sort of successfully. Uh, these were high quality studies, but the, but the people, uh, many of the scientists that read our studies had a very strong prior about what they thought the infection fatality rate was not based on evidence, but just based on their gut feeling, kind of like Sam was doing in, on that podcast. Uh, that isn't the way science works. The science, if you, if you see something that contradicts, if you see data that contradicts your uh, priors, you update your priors. I, I have to tell you, I actually updated my priors. After my study came out, I thought the infection fatality rate would be lower than what we found, but in fact, it ended up being higher than what. Uh, so it was, you know, I, I, if if you'd asked me what the infection fatality rate was likely to be in that, I, I mean, I might have said something like point one percent before we ran the study, and I would have said I don't know this with any certainty at all. Uh, I'd really need the study to be able to tell. And when it turned out to be 0.2%, I immediately updated my prior to this is going to be about 0.2%. And it's going to be much higher in the elderly. Right. Even though now we know it's 0.034%, which is, which is even lower than your 0.1% for the non-elderly population, right? So Yeah. You, I mean, you, I'm talking you, about you, an you're, overall you're, estimate. I mean, that 0.1 was right. wrong. That, that, you know, yes. if, I mean, you know, no one asked me what I thought it was at then. I, I mean, I don't know exactly what I would have said then to put myself in my, that mindset, but it would, you know, I wouldn't have said, I, I, I thought point, I, I didn't anticipate 0.2%. That's actually higher than I thought it would end up being. Um, I also didn't, I didn't anticipate 0.01% either, like the H1N1. I just didn't know the number. That's why we ran the studies. Right. And, and that's, that's an important kind of side point too, is like when we're, when we're on podcasts and we're talking about infection fatality rate, th there is a certain downside of using overall aggregate numbers. Like in, in light of the current evidence from, from John, his meta-analysis, it makes far more sense to use 0.034% for the non-elderly population, given that the vast majority of people listening to podcasts like Sam Harris or Rogan or whoever, they're going to be under 70, right? So it's, it's more responsible to use... Oh, I don't that, know. I know. I know some over seventy year olds who live with, listen to them too. So, I mean, I think well, I think you want to sure. you want to be you want to no. be very specific about like these things. Yes. What you want is you you want to say uh, what the risks are for different risk groups. Um, the the overall number is interesting, and of course, I spent a lot of time trying to get that overall number. Uh, so, of course, I was interested in it. Uh, but I, I don't, I think that the problem is like, if you think about it uh, as just the overall number, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't help guide policy exactly the way you want. Uh, the real thing is the risk stratification. Um, we saw that actually in the Santa Clara study that the, you saw that we saw this thousand fold difference in the risk of dying from older to younger. Um, I think, I think they're, they're actually at that, up to that date, uh, in April when we did the study, there were no child deaths, no deaths under the age of 20 in Santa Clara County at all. Um, so, you know, we saw it's that age stratification really turns out to be the most important fact uh, coming out of the studies to guide policy. Mm. And, and again, just to clarify what I was just saying there, um, given that the vast majority, I, I, I didn't say no 70 year olds are listening. To <laughs> I, I'm just teasing you, Rob. Yeah, it's yeah, all right. Yeah, right. 
So yeah, but, but, but no, I, th I think that's an important point though, when people are using aggregate numbers and you know what, let, let me just pause there. I'm, I'm going to tie that into something directly to Sam in a second. But again, in this conversation with Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger, you know, Barry Weiss is telling Sam that you were demonized as a fringe figure because of a concerted nefarious effort by Fauci and Francis Collins to label you that way. And then Sam responds to that. Well, no, 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 you're mistaken. No, no, it's not just a concerted effort. Like this guy, while, while he's a real serious epidemiologist, he's, you know, he, you know, he got this wrong. And, you know, the overall insinuation there is it, it was it's, it's not completely unreasonable <laughs> to view you as as um, unreasonable at that time, given that you, you know, supposedly were, were thinking that far fewer people were going to die than the actual number of people who ended up dying. So he, he was he was trying to like give at least some iota of defense for why you were um, viewed in that negative light. And I think that's important to highlight because you, you got, I'll let you respond in a second, but you got so many things right after that point. I mean, and again, I mean, I, I think- I think we got that point right yes, also. No, 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 you, no you, you got that point right also too, but it's, it's, it's really strange to me why why Sam would nitpick this one March 2020 article. And, and I'll, not I'll, even... I'll tell yeah. you why he's doing that. Sorry, yeah. Sam got the, the whole pandemic wrong. He didn't understand the nature of the, the, the risk factors of fatality. He didn't understand the, the possibility of focus protection. He, did, he misunderstood deeply nearly everything, especially I think he didn't understand deeply enough the harms of lockdown to the poor, the working class, to children. And a lot of people who got it wrong, rather than just saying they got it wrong, I mean, getting things wrong in science is fine. There's not, it's just a, that just happens in science. It's not a problem. It doesn't disqualify you from like, you know, uh, participating in the scientific discussion, you might get the next thing right. That's just the nature of the way science works. You don't disqualify people just because they got it wrong. But by doubling down, trying to say, look, oh, everybody got it wrong, so it's okay I got it wrong, that really, that, that's, not, that's just not a serious response to this. Sam got so much wrong, and he's like a public intellectual. He's not an epidemiologist. And, he, and his, as a result, his reputation has been harmed by the fact that he got so much wrong. And he's trying to repair that by attacking people who actually got it right at the time. It was, there was no excuse for Fauci and Collins to, to participate in this sort of uh, demonization campaign uh, to, to, you know, to call me fringe epidemiologist or what. That's, that was an abuse of power. And if Sam is saying that that was somehow legitimate, then I, I've lost a lot of respect for Sam. Yeah, yeah. He didn't explicitly say that. And I don't think that's what he thinks. He, he does think that there is good, there, there was good reason at the time and still apparently good reason to, uh, to judge your overall pandemic advocacy based on that one, you know, March 2020 op-ed and, and not even, again, returning to my... But he, it, but he misread the March 2020 well, yes, op-ed. Yes. Apparently he's yeah, still yeah. misreading it. I, I mean, we actually got that, we actually were correct that there was this deep range of uncertainty at the time, March 2020. And then once we started doing these seroprevalence studies, the, the range of uncertainty dropped very sharply. And we actually got the infection fatality rate right in those studies, right, based on, on a whole bunch of other independent teams running similar studies around the world. I mean, I just, you know, it's just 
frustrating. It's like Sam doesn't know the basics of how science actually works. Right. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. So it's it's just strange to me to nitpick the lower bound of one article, which the even if that lower bound is inexcusable, which you know I, I think you've you've compellingly defended your case here. But even if that's it was wrong to even use that at the time. First of all, the overall implication of the article was vindicated again. Right. The, the media reports at the time, three to four percent fatality rate. You were essentially in that op ed saying that is overblown. It's likely far lower vindicated on that front. But even if we step back even further behind that one single op ed, which he's nitpicking the lower bound of that one piece, which overall was true, you have gotten so many things right. And whereas Sam, he's platformed other scientists on his podcast, many of them respectable, many of them who I had. I had far greater respect for before who I was a fan of like Nick Christakis, you know, on Sam's podcast in December, 2021, he said, we know for a fact, 1% of infected people are dying of COVID. Now he did say there's a sharp age gradient, but he said on average, we know for a fact, 1% of people are dying of COVID. Number two, he said, uh, most people who get, you know, people who get vaccine myocarditis, they're fine. I believe that's a direct quote, fine. And it's self-limiting and it's not that big of a deal. That was the implication. Uh, He said COVID vaccines are truly benign. Um, And I'm going to return to that point um, uh, in a a second with respect to something Sam said. That that point was was wrong. I mean, these are very general points to make. And I mean, Nick is Nick is a is a very distinguished scientist. And whatever he says, I take seriously. the fact that he might get some things wrong is not a disqualifying thing. The next time Nick says something, I will take it seriously. I, I highly respect his views. And whenever he, whenever he uh, talks, uh, I, I, you know, if, if I disagree with him about something, I examine my own views. Um, those things that you just said that he said were not right. I, that doesn't disqualify him as a as an excellent scientist. It's just he didn't know those numbers, or maybe he hadn't read the literature deeply enough, or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't. I think um, you know, like the idea that scientists all agree with each other is not exactly. I mean, it's not. It's obviously incorrect. The problem is, and I think the way Sam is thinking about it, if you're wrong on one thing, therefore you're wrong on everything else, and therefore you shouldn't be listened to. Well, I mean, Sam got quite a lot wrong. He, I don't think he'd want that that uh, standard applied to him. Uh, the, the the key thing is that we allow these conversations to happen without demonizing each other. This is the problem with uh, Francis Collins writing about calling me a fringe epidemiologist or, or Tony Fauci saying, if you disagree with him, you're just not just disagreeing with a man, you're disagreeing with science itself. That kind of hubris has no place in science. Science needs people with different points of view grappling with the data asking for more data uh the the the, the problem here is like S- sam got things so far wrong and his reputation has suffered as a result and he's lashing out at me simply because i got these facts right i mean it's just not right yeah and and, and to, to be clear I don't, I don't think he's saying you're totally discredited just like we're talking about christakis here he did say you were right about school closures in that podcast, and he said you're a serious epidemiologist. But nonetheless, again, it's it's just I, I think it's very dishonest and selective to again use the lower bound of an op-ed. Yeah, I mean, funny, but, but whereas and and 
again, just to close on this point, um, sorry, just to close the loop on this point before we end on some things that Sam specifically got wrong, given that you've you know said that. Um, you know, again, Nicholas Christakis, respectable scientist. You know, he I, I laid out a few things he got wrong. Again, the one percent was wrong, and um, for anyone listening, they can go read my article on infection fatality rate I wrote a few months ago, where I I quoted you in that piece where you responded to that one percent claim, saying that the, the you know the, the studies that use those upper range um, estimates like zero point seven to one percent, they're flawed because they use studies with substandard uh, methodologies, which uh, which uh, don't use accurate uh, numbers of of infections and therefore um, artificially inflate the uh, infection fatality rate. Right, so. People can go read that if they want. Um, but otherwise, again, Christakis, respectable scientist, but, you know, even time and time again, you know, he says things that I think are incorrect. Like he was for vaccine mandates and he, he said that it is completely defensible for governments and for private businesses to fire unvaccinated employees. And very recently, you know, he put out a tweet uh, in December of 2022 um, saying that it's completely justifiable for the military to mandate mRNA vaccines for their personnel when we know the military is a, a concentrated group of younger, healthy men. We know the cardiac risk, and on that front, it makes no sense. And overall, ethically, which I think you've been vindicated on, it, it doesn't make sense. So, just, just, I mean, just again, it, it, it makes no way. I mean, like those, Sorry, those. No, um, I don't agree with those views at all. I mean, I think uh, the, yeah. the the mandates have been tremendously harmful for public health, uh, fueling vaccine hesitancy for other non-COVID vaccines. The, the the only premise I can think of that would justify a vaccine mandate uh, would be that somehow these that these vaccines do prevent transmission, and you need. Uh, a very large fraction of the population to be vaccinated in order for to transmission to go effectively close to zero forever. The problem is these vaccines do not stop transmission. And so the basic premise, a, a necessary condition for which you might justify a vaccine mandate is not met. So I don't really understand why mm-hmm. Nick would be in favor of, of, uh, of vaccine mandates. Right. And again, I'm, I'm only bringing that up not to start any fights with Nick or to attack him or anything, but just to contextualize why, you know, you said Sam got a lot of things wrong. I agree with you there in terms of COVID. He got a lot of things wrong. And the reason for that is because he relied on Dr. Eric Topol and Dr. Nicholas Christakis. He s- selected these scientists and sort of viewed what they were saying as biblical and viewed what they were saying was in line with what other scientists were saying. Like these points on infection fatality rate, on the, you know, uh, the... The trivial nature of adverse events from from the vaccine, which are you know extremely extremely low, and you know we, we can talk more about that. But point points like that, you know, he took from Christakis and Topol and viewed I, that to be one hundred percent true. Whereas there's far more complexity and diversity of views and disagreement on some of those important points, as your work demonstrates. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean I have a lot of sympathy for Sam. Right, he's not an epidemiologist. He does not understand the, the basics of these issues. Uh, but his epistemological approach was to essentially find gurus that he agreed with, rather than uh, reflecting the the range of scientific opinions on on these various topics. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that that's really the problem. This is the same problem with with like 
Tony Fauci and, and Francis Collins. They wanted to create an illusion of consensus that they knew the science and no one else did. And then you disagreed with them as, as spreading misinformation. That was false. That was not, that was, and in fact, it was a very harmful pre, uh, idea because then what it did is it made it very difficult for scientists who did disagree on good bases, on solid scientific bases to, to speak up because they didn't want their careers destroyed. That essentially is what Sam is signing on to when he endorses, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the attack on me as, as, as a fringe epidemiologist. Mm. And, and again, let's just be even more charitable. Like, so he's, he's rightly viewing at that time and still the like very fringes of, you know, vaccine conspiracy thinking, people who think that vaccines are killing millions of people, that ivermectin is supremely effective, um, whatever you think about that question. Um, that vaccines are causing cancer, that they're poisoning people, people are dropping dead. He's rightly turned off about those things. And you, you would agree with him on those things, right? But Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's good evidence for any of those things. Yeah, but the I way they respond, yes, and he, he was largely turned off by that in 2020 and 2021 and still. And so he responded to those things which where you would agree with him on and I would agree with him on. Like those things are conspiracy. why spend your time on like, really ideas that are like so clearly at odds with the data spend your spend your time on things that are truly not known that's where the science is most interesting where where i mean this is this this is like i think good scientists don't don't walk around playing whack-a-mole on stupid ideas they what good scientists do is look for the places where there's deep uncertainty among scientists and develop approaches and develop tests and experiments to to narrow that uncertainty that's where we learn the most about the way the world works. Uh, I don't know why Sam would be so moved by uh, ideas that really just don't are so, so obviously false. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and and then and then like then to lump together. Uh, I mean, if, you're, if I'm understanding you correctly, to lump together uh, people who hold those ideas with serious scientists disagreeing with each other. I think it's just a category here. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if he's doing that. But at the very least, he's, again, selected um, some experts and viewed them to be correct whilst uh, disregarding the true I mean, given, diversity given, of views. Yeah, given that he didn't have the relevant expertise and still does not have the relevant expertise, I don't know how he decided who to follow. Correct. Yeah, and again, you know, Nicholas Christakis, you know, respectable scientist, you know, at that time, you know, maybe I would have also had Nicholas Christakis on because I... I also greatly respect. Uh, look, his I, 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 I would recommend you have him on now. I mean, I think every whenever Nick talks and thinks, he is a really serious thinker, and he is he is very often uh, insightful, and uh, you learn from him even when when you disagree with him. I, I so I just I mean I I would recommend you have him on now. Um, I I just you know he was wrong on those points. Lots of scientists are wrong on lots of points. It doesn't make them not interesting scientists or important scientists. Yes. Yeah. And uh, before we close this podcast with a, an important section in a second, I think I think that is the, the sort of the question mark, maybe to, to be most charitable to Sam. Like, that's the big question mark I have, like for him is like, you know, you, OK, let's just say for argument's sake, again, Jay was wrong to mention 20,000 in that piece. First of all, overall slant of that piece was vindicated. But even after that point, from after March 2020, you did those studies and you found a totally vindicated infection fatality rate, and you were right about um, uh, vaccine transmission. You were right about 
uh, adverse events. You were right about mandates. You were right about the fatality rate and focus um, protection. Both, well, yeah, not, 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 not to even mention the policy implications for all of this, right? The Great Barrington yeah. Declaration totally vindicated. Whereas, you know, you, you, if, if you start from April 2020, Nicholas Christakis got like all those things wrong. Again, we respect him, but on those points, on vaccine mandates, on vaccine adverse events, on infection fatality rate, right? You were far more right than him. So again, it's that, that's the big question mark and sort of, um, but yeah, that, that's the question I have for Sam. Why are we focusing on one little thing from Jay in 2020? I, I, I have and a then, Hold on, hold on. Can, I, can I finish my point here for a second? Oh, absolutely, Ralph, sorry. Yeah. Why are we focusing on one thing in March 2020, which I agree that was a very important and fearful and uncertain, precarious time, but why are we focusing on this one thing from 20, March 2020 from Jay while doing like zero self-reflection on everything after that point, things that were multiple things that were said on his podcast that were wrong. There's been zero clarification on, 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 on the points that I've made on Nick and Eric Topol as well, saying many misleading and false things on the podcast. Again, we're not saying they're nefarious or that they you know, have some bad intentions, but they were wrong on those things. And if Sam is an honest and, and, and intellectually honest figure, which in, in, in some other issues, I, I think that reputation of him is accurate. If he is an if he is an intellectually honest person, he would he he would self reflect on those things, invite other scientists to you know on his podcast maybe, and to look at how potentially at least at least potentially how Christakis and Eric Topol were saying misleading and false things on his podcast. I, I think in order to remain intellectually honest, um, he must do that if he is to preserve his uh, his uh, high reputation. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that if I were to give advice to Sam, I, I would I would just I, I would just acknowledge the error. He got a tremendous amount wrong during the pandemic, and then do some introspection about what led him to get those things wrong, uh, mm. and, and maybe what are the lessons from it. I think that would be a tremendously interesting podcast, and I think it would build his reputation as an intellectually honest man. Mm. Um, I, I think this sort of uh, lashing out at scientists who actually got these issues right, even the 20,000 number was actually an, a, a plausible lower end estimate of a, of a confidence, of a, of a bound. Uh, on, on, on the infection fatality rate, the, the bound that we actually ended up finding was within that range, 20,000 to 2 million or whatever. Um, that, the, the, that actually accurately reflected the uncertainty of the time. Um, I, I think if he just did that, he, he would, he would uh, have a much better chance of pulling back the audience that once respected him. Uh, th this kind of petty uh, attack is just beneath him, I believe. And okay, so now we should close off on this portion here because again, you you said, and I've also said that he's gotten many things wrong. So I'm just very quickly going to mention a few things that he got wrong, and you can respond to that. These are direct um, statements from him, things that he said um, previously and in the past couple of months. Okay, let me just start off quickly. Okay, summer of 2021 podcast with Eric Topol. Um, you know, vaccines are being distributed to the public at that point. And in that podcast, he's at a restaurant, he says, um, where there's a large number of un, unvaccinated waiters because the, the unmasked or the masked waiters at that time, he was told this was the restaurant policy. The masked waiters um, 
were unvaccinated. And there was a large number of them. And Sam says the, the only reason why those waiters are unvaccinated is because of deranged conspiratorial, like right-wing conspiracy theory, right? How does now, he know? I mean, he doesn't know their medical status. He doesn't know if they've been previously infected. A lot of people who uh, were waiters and uh, you know, f- food service people at the time had already had COVID and recovered. The marginal benefit of the vaccines for them were very low. Uh, maybe they were young and didn't really need, didn't feel they needed it. They didn't have from COVID. Exactly. Who the hell knows? These are like medical decisions that are complicated and individual. Uh, it's essentially the problem was like this demonization of the unvaxxed was tremendously bad for public health. It moralized exactly. the basic medical decision rather than letting letting it be a medical decision that that that, that people can privately make. Yeah, and, and that's an important point, right? Like, it was rational for, let's say, healthy people under the age of 50 to, at that time, say, well, I'm not sure, I'm not so sure about this, about, about this vaccine, right? In your view, it was rational to make that decision, right? I mean, it could be rational. I mean, just, just, again, it depends on particulars of the medical situation of each individual. Well, yes. Especially if they'd had COVID and recovered, the marginal benefit of the vaccine is very small, especially for people young, young with, and previously COVID recovered. So I just, I don't, I mean, I don't think that it is the place of public health to judge people and moralize a medical decision, moralize like basically any of these decisions that people make. Our job in public health is to provide resources and accurate as information as, as well as, as accurate information when we don't know the answer, when there's uncertainty, and tell people those things truthfully as best we can. Um, th- this kind of, the kind of moralization you just described is not a, mm-hmm. should not ever be a part of public health. Mm. And again, put, put Sam's rhetoric aside, though, um, it, it was both rational to having paused getting vaccinated and getting vaccinated for like healthy people under 50. That, that was the point yeah. I was making. It, that it, is it was, fact, that's, that's, the, that's now the policy in, in much of Scandinavia. Right. And so that, that is an important point right, to, to make. Right? If, if you're healthy yeah. and you were 45 or 46 or 27 or 34, no comorbidities, you exercise and eat well and sleep well. At that time, if you decided, um, I'm not so sure about this vaccine, there's some concerning reports about myocarditis and menstrual issues and overall uncertainty, I'm very healthy, I don't want to get this vaccine, that is not a deranged, conspiratorial, crazy position at that time. You're not rolling the dice or playing some insane risk game there. That is a, like, that is a rational decision, just like it is a rational decision, or sorry, just like it was a rational decision as well, to have gotten vaccinated at that time, right? That yeah, is the that, that is sensible. I agree with that. Yeah, right. You and I, and you know, obviously the, the focus is you here. You were rational at that time in saying both were rational for healthy people. Now, obviously, for elderly people, that's a totally different game. We would agree with Sam; those people should get vaccinated. But for healthier people, there was far more uncertainty, and there was absolutely scientific rationale to have not gotten vaccinated. Whereas for Sam, that was off the table. As long as you were not a kid, if you were over 20 or 30, if you didn't get vaccinated, you were the holder of deranged right-wing. I, I, I mean, yeah, the less said about this, the better. I, I just don't understand how Sam could be so um, uh, presumptuous to, to somehow get in the minds of people and then judge them on the basis of a med- medical facts that he has no capacity of knowing. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's just bad public health. Hmm. All right, a, a couple more things before we go. Again, so that was 2021. So we can we can be charitable and say, well, okay, 
you know, imperfect information. I still think it was wrong for him to do that, just as you do. But, okay, that was 2021. Let's use his most current views as an indicator of what he actually thinks. And, again, time and time again over the past few months, he has said things that are just misleading, wrong, um, fallacious in many ways. He was on trigonometry and said, oh, getting vaccinated always made sense whatever danger you're going to put on the side of the vaccine, there's more danger from COVID. Now, that is a very simplistic, broad statement to put out there. The math of it is wrong. The math of it is wrong. So that uh, that presumes that the vaccine stops you from getting COVID. The vaccine doesn't stop you from getting COVID. And so then that means that the question is, what is the marginal effect of vaccination? On yeah, sorry, the, on sorry, COVID? Jay. One second. Your voice is a little different now. It's a little. Okay. I can hear you. Just your voice is a little like robotic. Oh. Suddenly. Okay. Can you hear me now? Is this better? Is it better now? Hello? It's not, it's not, oh, now, now, okay. now we're good. We're good. Okay. Again. So, so whatever danger you're going to put on the side of the vaccine, there's more danger from COVID. Sorry, you, you, you were going to go. Yeah. On. So the math of that is not right. Um, the question is not, is COVID more dangerous or the vaccine more dangerous? The vaccine doesn't stop you from getting COVID. And so that means that you have to consider not the relative harm from the vaccine versus COVID. The, you have to, what you have to consider is the marginal effect of vaccination on some parts of the harm from COVID versus, uh, versus the harms from COVID without the vaccine plus the harms from the vaccine. You, so it's, it's a more complicated calculus. Um, and it's not clear from the data. Even now, it's not clear. Uh, exactly. For instance, like what is the effect of the vaccine on long, long on, on the probability of long COVID, right? That's not, I mean, as, as best I can tell from the literature, quite a contentious topic. Um, so I, I just, I think, I, I think Sam doesn't understand the basic, uh, like the, the, the basic sort of mathematics of how you make recommendations in these kinds of cases. Um, and, and, and I think maybe his central mistake is he's thinking about this vaccine as if it stopped you from getting COVID. Then maybe that, that that kind of analysis might be okay, but it, well, it doesn't stop you from getting COVID. So therefore, that analysis is going to be more complicated than than, than what you just described. Yeah. No, he has said in other podcasts he has conceded that that you know, vaccines aren't, aren't aren't very effective at curbing transmission. But I, I think his point though is is that vaccines do reduce severe disease, right? And yes. COVID does pose a real risk. So it's it's it, you know you you could run that calculation. Right. Like what is what is the rate of serious adverse events from the vaccine compared to what are the rates of hospitalization or death from COVID? That's like still that, not that's enough. Right. So it's like the rate of hospitalization from the vaccine uh, sort of minus the the, del- the marginal decrease in the rate of hospitalizations from COVID. If you have the vaccine on board versus the rate of hospitalization from COVID, if you don't have the vaccine on board. Yes. Right. That's that's the right way to think about this. Right. But but again, so so when he says stuff like that, you know, it's it just comes across that he hasn't done the adequate research. Like, <clears throat> excuse I mean, this is just this the, is just not his area. The, yeah, yeah. I, the, I, the, the the analogy. I just want to finish my point. The the analogy there, like it's it's kind of like if you talk about the homicide rates of the United States, and you're, you know, you it's 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 obviously very different. You can't just say, well, this is the homicide rate in the U.S. without accounting for it's very different, very different areas. So for him to say, whatever danger of the vaccine, it's, COVID is far more dangerous. That's far too a broad and simplistic 
statement to make. And especially that that statement, it's, it's just not clear. At the very least, it's not clear if that's true. But likely that's probably wrong. We don't know. And I'm going to say that in, in light of the um, study by respectable scientists from Stanford, UCLA, University of Maryland, the reanalysis of the original Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah, one data. in 800 serious adverse they, event rates. They uh, found, they, sorry, I'm just going to finish. They found a one in 800 adverse event rate um, when uh, all other major vaccines right now have an adverse event rate of one in a million, one per two million. This vaccine they found is one in 800. Now they couldn't find age stratified data because that wasn't um, Pfizer, Moderna, the FDA haven't released that. So it's, it's unclear what the risk benefit analysis is going to be. They did find on aggregate um, the, the mRNA vaccines have produced far more serious adverse events than they have prevented hospitalizations. But that, again, that's a general finding, which is, first of all, that's stunning and egregious on its own. But that's going to it's going to differ from age group to age. Group. Yeah, that's the key point. Sorry, just I, like we I, talked I, about the infection fatality rate. Right? Can I just finish? Yeah. Oh, I'm so, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, one in 800 adverse event rate. That's egregious that, that, that they even found that on an, on an aggregate number, which disproves just so much of what Sam said in 2021. And again, his interview on trigonometry, I believe, in September when he said this. But again, that yeah, that finding shouldn't be uh, misinterpreted either. Because um, while they did find that the risk of adverse events exceeds the risk, um, uh, exceeds the the likelihood that the vaccine would prevent hospitalization, it's going to differ by age group. So hypothetically, the, I, I had Dr. Joseph Freeman, the lead author of that study, on my podcast, and he said, "Yeah, probably for 60 to 70 to 80 year olds, it's going to the cost benefit analysis is going to skew towards getting vaccinated because of the higher risk of severe disease." But for healthier people under the age of 50 or 40 or 30, it's entirely unclear and likely skews towards not getting vaccinated. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that the age stratification, again, just as it was with the infection fatality rate, the age stratification of, of vaccine risk is the, is, the, is the crucial thing. And then, again, the marginal effect of the vaccine on uh, adverse events if you get COVID, um, it's going to be a bigger impact on people who face a high risk of, of, for instance, death from COVID. And so you're absolutely right. It's, it's, um, I mean, this, the, the, these are like complicated topics. It, the risk stratification matters. Uh, uh, the cause, ca causality matters. You have to be careful when you think about this. Um, uh, a, a single number won't risk express to you really what the right thing to do is, but it yes. might be, it might be that for and, and what it's right for some people and not right for other people. It always should have been a, a prudential medical decision based on uh, advice that you get from physicians, whether for you, whether it's good or bad or right or wrong to take the, to the vaccine or wise to take the vaccine or not. Uh, and rather than this like matter of social pressure. Mm. And just briefly to get your thoughts on that study, again, one in 800 compared to other vaccines that were pulled off the market, like other uh, vaccines, I believe, for the swine flu. You know, the, the authors wrote a great piece in Vinay Prashad's Substack. Other vaccines historically that were that, that were found to have like one in 10,000 or one in 100,000 adverse event rates were pulled off the market. All of their current vaccines right now, like the flu vaccine, have an adverse event rate have an adverse event rate of one in a million, one per two million, whereas this one has one in 800. Like, 
that is deeply concerning to you as a as a uh, scientist, right? Well, I mean, the one in I mean, that's it is a really interesting study. I think it's really well done. Um, the one in eight hundred number by itself is concerning, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't ever get the vaccine. I still think, uh, just as Joe said on your podcast, I agree with, it may have been right for an older person to get the vaccine. Um, it, it's still complicated. Like if you've had COVID and recovered, well, the marginal benefit is even small, is small for the vaccine, even for old, older people. So I, I don't, I, you know, it's a little, I, I don't want to like practice medicine on a podcast. Um, I, but I, so I, my, I just want to leave it with, it's a complicated decision that depends on your particular situation. The older you are, the, the better probably it is to get the vaccine. If you've had COVID and recovered, it makes it less beneficial to get the vaccine. Young people prob- and healthy people probably, young and healthy people probably don't need the vaccine. Um, but it's going to be complicated based on your particular medical situation. Yes. Yeah. And that's just completely heretical to say, like, you can't say that, that it's probably wrong for young and healthy people to get vaccinated, right? It likely doesn't confer sizable benefit. It doesn't confer sizable benefit. I can, I mean, it's just, I actually, I wrote an op-ed with, with Martin Kulldorff in April of 2021 saying it's probably not beneficial on net for young people to get the vaccine on the basis of the fact that young people don't die from COVID at very high rates. And so the benefit, marginal benefit of the vaccine is small and at the time, we didn't know what the side effect profiles were, but it's the vaccine had only been used for a short while. It was prudential to, to worry that there may be side effects we didn't know about. So small benefit, uncertain harms, you probably shouldn't get it for young people. For older people, it's very different. I wrote an op-ed in December of 2020 with Senator Gupta arguing that, that we should prioritize older people for the vaccine because you, it, the COVID is quite deadly for older people. And this vaccine reduces the rate of death from, from COVID. It has a big absolute risk reduction for older people. Um, and so it's, even if there are side effects, they're likely to be lower than the, 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 the marginal benefit from the vaccines for older people. Um, it's really hard to, I guess, for some people to understand, like Sam apparently, to understand this kind of risk stratification with 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 uh, with resulting in different advice for different kinds of people based on their medical situation. But that's just normal bread and butter in medicine. You don't practice exactly the same kind of medicine for a two-year-old as you do for or for a, a 72-year-old. They're going to have very different problems, very different situations, and you're going to have to end up making very different kinds of decisions. That's just normal medicine. Hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that's why it was wrong, you know, again, for him in 2021 and you know, still up until this point, like him saying, this is, I believe, a direct quote, the case for getting vaccinated is absolutely clear cut. Putting aside kids, putting aside teenage boys, the case for getting vaccinated is absolutely clear cut. Anyone who doesn't, they're the victim of bad information. Their concerns are not... Uh, warranted. And again, he said this, uh, I believe, last month on John Woods Jr.'s podcast. Um, I don't think this is a direct quote, but he said, there was and still is no evidence vaccines are as dangerous as COVID so as to remain unvaccinated for virtually all age cohorts. We know He just gets the math wrong there. He's, just, he's not thinking through the math of it correctly. Yeah, it's, it's far more complicated than that. I mean, just the myocarditis risk alone, it's not just teenage boys. It goes up till men under the age of 40, right? I mean, so- I just, just, just practically, I was very, very happy when my 83-year-old mom was vaccinated. 
I got vaccinated and I was, you know, kind of indifferent in the, in April, 2020, uh, for younger people, I just didn't think it was reasonable. Uh, the, the risk benefit made sense. It's just, it's going to depend on what your particular medical situation is. Those kind of blanket statements just get the math wrong. Mm. Yeah. And there was that one article that you were, um, you, you, you gave a great quote to me for that the one article where I interviewed a 38 year old law enforcement member who, uh, here in Canada, he's local. He's, he's also South Asian like us. He's great guy. Um, and it wasn't hard to like find him. And, and also it's, it's not very hard by the way, to find cases of vaccine myocarditis. It's remarkably easy to do that. Whereas it's very difficult to find cases of, of people who are, who don't have comorbidities under the age of 50 who are dying or being hospitalized with COVID. But again, that that's just anecdotal, but that in that one article, 38 year old law enforcement member mandated to get the vaccine, um, because he works in law enforcement and the uh, Canadian government's mandated the vaccine. He was hospitalized with vaccine myocarditis, almost died um, that day, I believe, in October. Oh, goodness. Because of this side effect, because also the public health messaging on myocarditis wasn't um, adequate. And if, if the public health authorities did message on this, they only said, well, this is just a problem of like 16 to 17 year old like boys. This is not like... Teenage yeah. boys besides and you quoted it. I got a good quote from you in that article, where you said, "This man, who by the way was incredibly fit, this was the very sad thing about him. I think at that point he was a year and a half after that incident, and he still couldn't go to the gym and exercise and resume his normal activities because of that one case, because oh, he was goodness. forced to get this vaccine." And you, and in that quote you gave me at that time. People can go read it on my Substack. Uh, the truth about vaccine myocarditis, part two. You said to me, "This is a very tragic case because the benefit to this 38-year-old fit man who's healthy, the benefit from vaccination was negligible, whereas the downside was real and uncertain, and it's just really tragic given that he was yeah. mandated to do that." I, I mean, it's. I just. I think that. The fact the, the the mandate tr- tremendously undermined confidence in public health. The fact that the mandate was 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 so universal didn't account for prior immunity uh, based on COVID recovery. Didn't account for risk stratification. Didn't didn't account for, uh, both in the harms from the vaccine and also the benefits from the vaccine. It was just it's just bad public health. Mm. And again, Sam, September of this past year on trigonometry said. It makes total, well, he, interestingly, he said, well, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense for the government to mandate the mRNA vaccines, but it is completely justified for private employers of various companies to mandate vaccines. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see why one, one group, uh, it doesn't make any sense, that distinction. It just doesn't make any, uh, it doesn't, there's no reason for either private employers or the government to be mandating this vaccine in a blanket way. And if, and I think if, if, if employers do mandate this vaccine and people are, are injured as a result of it, they, the, 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 the employer should be liable. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, of course. But again, it's just, just agreed to me why Sam would say that in September of 2022, it makes total sense for employers to mandate the vaccine. We know the risks, we know they're, totally not effective at curbing transmission. So again, this just, it, it's very clear that he hasn't done the adequate research that someone like yourself and 
to a lower to, to a lesser extent a journalist like myself who's been looking into this when i hear these things it just comes across that he's been fed a very specific narrative and he doesn't have a sophisticated complex understanding of covid and of vaccines and you know this is why i think some number of people have lost some trust in him is because this is a very complicated subject and getting vaccinated is far more complex there are far more risks and there were far more uncertainties than i think sam has ever acknowledged yeah well um it's so good to talk with you rob but unfortunately i have to i have to run Yes, it's no worries. Um, but thank you for the opportunity to talk about the, these very important topics. Um, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want uh, just to end it. I, I wish all the best to Sam, but I, I think he would do better if he were to rethink how he approaches these issues, and and uh, you know, sort of lashing out at me. I don't know what purpose it serves him. I agree. I agree. And thanks for coming on. Um, and thanks for you know being a. a uh, a reliable source for uh, many of my articles. It's always great to uh, quote you and to talk to you and to pick your brain every now and then uh, online. You know, we've had many, many discussions about a number of topics. It's, it's really interesting and really helpful to uh, get your view on that. So, so thank you. And uh, in terms of Sam, again, I'm a huge fan of Sam. I love his work regards, with regards to meditation, spirituality, self-transcendence. I've read you know, many of his books big supporter of his of his work there and on many political and cultural topics and i'll continue supporting him on those things but i think if he's if if, if he wants to maintain a reputation of intellectual honesty i think he should further self-reflect on things that he's gotten wrong and admit that and concede that and engage with some of those people perhaps and 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 talk to other scientists and, and potentially have a debate or discussion with other people who disagreed with the scientists that he chose at that time. And I think, I think Sam, I think will eventually, I think do something. I mean, there's so much social and cultural pressure there, um, obviously from various corners of the internet, but I think, I think reason will prevail. And I think at, at some point there will be a time of honest self-reflection of what was right and what was wrong. And I think many things were wrong. And I hope, uh, I hope he wakes up to that very soon. Thank you, Rob. You have a great evening. All right.